over 8,000 cryptocurrencies based on statistics numbers in December 2021. That's a bunch. You kind of hear about a few of them. And cryptocurrency is our topic today. This is the Insurance AUM Journal podcast. My name is Stuart Foley, and we're joined by two experts from Victory Capital. We're joined by Monik Dillon and Scott Kiefer. Gentlemen, thanks for being on. Pleasure. Thank you, Stuart. Thanks, Stuart. Nice to be here. It's great to talk to you guys. I'm not a crypto expert at all. So I'm, I'm always the one that learns the most on these podcasts. And that's uh, exciting for me. Why is crypto such a popular topic right now? Sure, uh, Stuart, this is Scott. I'll kick that off. You know, it represents a really exciting brand new asset class. It's something that represents the potential of an appreciable asset. For some, it's viewed as a store of value, so you can think of it as a digital gold, um, and therefore it offers potential portfolio diversification as well. But maybe most importantly, you know, it's an opportunity to participate in the early stages of a truly unique and disruptive technology platform. And I've covered technology stocks for almost 30 years. And if you look back over that time period, every decade or so, we tend to see the emergence of a new technology platform. When I came into the industry, it was distributed computing. So PCs were really rolling out. We had network computing and obviously the internet, mobile computing, cloud computing. And each of these platforms offered something really unique at its core, some element of differentiation versus the prior platform that ultimately became a building block for innovation and new applications, applications that enhance productivity, help to lower costs. And while we're still really early in crypto, it has the potential to do exactly the same. It's interesting that you talk about the technology because I have had this explained to me countless times and I'm, I don't know, I've got a hole in my brain. I struggle to wrap my head around the technology. Can you explain at a high level the technology that crypto and blockchain incorporate or encompass? Yep, sure. So. The way to think about blockchain is it's a decentralized public ledger. So it's recording information and it's recording it anonymously. It's recording it permanently, which means it's immutable. It can't be changed or altered once it's recorded. The fact that this record of information is decentralized and public means that there are many copies of it that are going to be spread across a network of computers. So anyone with a powerful enough computer can help host this ledger of information. And what it's replacing are centralized ledgers. So when you think about a bank or a credit card company, they run a private ledger to track the flow of money. And their job is to make sure that we don't double spend, that if I owe Monic $5, I didn't already give the $5 to you. We're taking that outside of the control of a private entity and moving it into a public blockchain. Uh, crypto is you know, going to leverage this technology and benefit from the lack of that central authority. You know, you can kind of think of it as almost like a giant Google Doc that's shared and trusted and maintained across a network of computers and participants. What I hear, and I've heard explanations similar, what I hear when somebody says it can't be compromised, is that true? Is it comfortable that we say it cannot be hacked? Because I mean, I, I hear of things being hacked all the time. And I think that's something that, I know I sound like a dinosaur. I qualify as a dinosaur. I'm gray. <laughs> but I think this is something that people want to know. I think that's a great point, Stuart. We hear about it a lot. 
What you hear about mostly when it comes to someone being hacked or lost their crypto assets or coins or tokens is generally the actual token or coin and where it's held. So it's actually, they left it on an exchange. They left it in a place that wasn't secure. So their custody of it wasn't held and wasn't done and carried out in an institutionally secure way. That's what we often hear about. There are also those different protocols and blockchains that are out there that aren't up to institutional standards either that have been hacked to themselves. So I think it's very important to not paint every single blockchain, every single crypto asset with the same brush. There are definitely, because as you started the podcast, you mentioned there's 8,000 plus. There's actually more than that, even after probably since we started speaking, there's more than that since the start of the year. They're not all of the same quality. So when, but when you start thinking about the largest ones, the most liquid ones, the most established ones, the protocols are built into the code of the blockchain so that you can prevent bad actors. So this is why the whole proof of work versus proof of stake concept exists to keep someone from gaining majority control and being able to do what Scott said, which is spend a token twice, for example. So those are built into these blockchain protocols in terms of the code and the security. But I'm not going to sit here and tell you that they're all like that. And that's why we shouldn't also make a decision on investing in crypto assets because of those that haven't met that criteria. But we should also look at the ones that have and say, okay, what we hear about in the media sometimes is maybe either disinformation or, or it's not exactly what we're worried about. It reminds me, I mean, like maybe a too simplistic of an analogy, but it's like, you know, some companies go broke, but that doesn't mean you don't buy equities, right? right. I mean, there's some companies that do well and some don't, and you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater if that's a fair analysis. So it's a fair analogy. And, and I think it's also the same as when people ask me often about, well, I thought crypto was used for criminal activity. Right, well, yeah. actually, yeah. actually, the data and the research suggests that it's not really. We hear about that, but so is the internet. We don't stop using the internet because of it. So is the U.S. dollar. You know, the U.S. dollar is used in a lot of criminal activity as well. So, you know, you have to really step back and, you know, away from the headlines and do the research. And you kind of see that, you know, the way crypto assets exist today the various blockchains, the assets themselves is very different from probably five years ago. And that's why people are talking about it. Back to your original question, the reason people are talking about it is because it has reached this point of at least some of them being institutionally investable. And that's why it's getting more and more attention. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, I hear that the level of disruption that blockchain will bring right and i feel like one of those times where i feel like i'm behind the curve right at this point and that's why i want to get to the next point here which is you know what makes this a compelling investment and if you look at bitcoin is the most talked about you hear people on tv and and elsewhere like jamie diamond talking down crypto I always wonder when I hear something like that, do they have an ax, right? Can you talk a little bit about what makes that a compelling investment? I'll kick it off, but Monica, please, you know, jump in also. 
The first thing I just want to comment on are some of the, the people who are coming out with critical statements about the technology. Jamie Dimon, you mentioned. Um, again, I go back to past platforms. When we present this topic to webinars, we always put up a slide that shows how, you know, Paul Krugman back in the 90s said the internet will have no more utility than the fax machine. We had Bill Gates back in the early 90s thought that the internet would be a fad, only to reverse course literally a year later and make it the number one priority of his firm. That often happens early on, there's skepticism. And a lot of it is because the early applications shouldn't be what we focus on. It's the inherent attributes of the technology. And I go back to the decentralization. One of the things that brings, and this is where that idea of being a productivity enhancement or enhancing technology, a cost-savings technology, that ability to be decentralized means you're removing the middleman. Removing the middleman removes friction, speeds up transaction times, removes a layer of margin that gets skimmed out. The other thing is this concept of smart contracts and the ability to program into the blockchain terms and conditions you'd have in a contract but rather than have to go through the lawyers and the escrows and the time and the transfer process of funds, you program all of that right into a smart contract. If this happens, then do why, and you speed up transaction times. So the technology has a lot of inherent and attractive elements to it that people are going to build more and more applications on top of that take advantage of that. Those applications will have greater value. We've started with the idea of crypto being a currency. We're seeing it rolled out with tokenization into things like NFTs, DeFi. We talk about Web 3.0. So it's the basic elements of decentralization and programmable contracts that I think will be leveraged to build applications we can't think of today that will continue to grow. And you wanna be able to participate in that and have exposure to that growth. You have to remember that most prognosticators, or at least the ones that people listen to, are in control of very large organizations often. And that's quite at the antithesis of the, you know, the whole thesis behind a decentralized blockchain-driven economy or industry that you can apply it to. What's actually fascinating to me about some of these statements that come out and make the headlines is that some of these same organizations are actually spending a lot of money, time, and resources on actually developing their own teams and infrastructure to take advantage of blockchain technology in their industries. And if you believe in the ability for a decentralized blockchain approach to any industry, you have to step back and actually appreciate the crypto assets or tokens that are native to that blockchain. Because in order for transactions to actually get done and for whether it's the healthcare industry using the blockchain for medical records or the auto industry, perhaps for title registration and things like that, you're going to have to consume and spend the native currency on the native crypto asset or token on that blockchain. So you can't say, oh, the technology is great and that I believe in that, but I don't believe in XYZ token, because they're kind of go together. And, but I think it's also important when you read these headlines, they're often Bitcoin centric. And I think it's very important for investors and potential investors in crypto assets to know that Bitcoin does not equal all of the crypto asset opportunity and vice versa. And it was the first, 
we had many firsts in the internet boom, like AOL, et cetera, but it was the first. It serves a particular function for the people that do consume it and own it, but it's not, that functionality and what it presents is not all of the opportunity that's sitting in front of us. It's interesting you say that because as Scott was talking about the internet, I'm gonna majorly date myself here, but I remember seeing a Netscape browser for the first time. And I'm like, whoa, right? And for a long time, I mean, that was, you know, then you get the 90s run up. And to your point, I don't think anybody could see the vast application of the internet all over the place, right? From me turning the lights on and off in my house by telling Alexa to do it. It's just, it's nuts. Stuart, let me throw a few more of those at you because I love those analogies. You know, you mentioned Netscape. There's Alta Vista, Ask Jeeves. You know, we oh, thought Ask Jeeves. How about that? <laughs> we thought Amazon was a bookstore company. Absolutely. We thought MySpace was the social media platform, then came Facebook. So, Monik's point about Bitcoin centric and the early winners. When you're investing in this space, you have to cast a wide net because you don't know how it will evolve. It will evolve. More applications, more utilities will come over time. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. So when we prepared for this call, I mentioned that we were in New York at the CFA New York CIO Roundtable, and I posed this question to the panel about what's the purpose of buying crypto. Listen to the answer by Jeff Cornell from AIG in this clip. Well, I would just say just to, to why we really haven't gotten involved at all is, is like, you know, I kind of think of everything we do as like fundamental, you know, analysis on, on assets that we hold. Like, I, I have not seen a good fundamental analysis. Our old CEO, CIO uh, used to talk about like, you know, illegal transactions and what are the size of illegal transactions and what that could possibly be. That, could, that was the most logical thing I've heard. And that's not really fundamental analysis, right? So exactly. we don't really invest in a lot of stuff that we can't sit down and actually come up with a model on and say, this is how it's going to perform. I mean, the point of the illiquid assets, like we hold mm-hmm. these things for many, many years and we hope that they're going to pay off. And I just, the, the volatility is way too high for me. Um, it seems to be influenced by you know, things that, you know, aren't predictable at all. And the the lack of ability to do any fundamental analysis on on it whatsoever, you know, would keep me out of it. I agree with Ming that, you know, there will be parts of the chain of crypto and things like that, that you will be able to do fundamental analysis on. You'll say, okay, well, if crypto grows to this and this technology has to be there and this many people use it and everything else, you can make those kind of assumptions. I just, I have not seen a good description of fundamental analysis on crypto. So based on that answer, how does one go about fundamental analysis of this asset class, including how to value it? The first thing I'd say is you can do fundamental analysis, but you have to throw away your DCF type of an approach. You know, this is an asset like gold or oil, commodities, collectibles, and they have to look through a different lens. Most importantly with crypto, you have to look at the demand drivers. Demand is what's going to drive valuation of crypto. So you focus on things like wallet growth, transaction value, hash rates. You watch the new applications and increased utility and functionality that's being developed. Today, there's no question that there's a fair amount of demand that's being just driven by greed and speculation. But I think what we're going through even in the market for it right now is a little bit of a rationalization, and it's going to change over time. Demand is what's going to drive valuation for crypto 
And that's because of the supply demand dynamics, which are kind of similar to an asset like gold or a precious metal where there's scarcity value. The supply is either capped or it's controlled in its issuance. So Bitcoin, for example, there's only going to be 21 million Bitcoins issued ever. That's programmed into the blockchain. That's all there will ever be. We're close to, I think, 19 million in circulation today. We're not going to hit 21 million until the year 2140. So you look at the demand drivers and you have a capped supply. Demand will drive those valuations higher. And we can talk about the demand drivers, but I'll pause there and see if that's along the lines of the questions you're asking. Well, I, think, I think along demand drivers, right, you have to even think about the ones, the crypto assets that aren't supply constrained because they don't, they don't all have a finite supply like Bitcoin does, but then they have a utility, a utility to process and serve as a means of payment to conduct those transactions that we talked about. And then you start to expand demand and say, so why do people really care about transacting on the blockchain in the future. So if we wake up five years from now and we do an update to this podcast, what will we have seen? Think about all the unbanked individuals oh, or underbanked individuals globally. It's a massive, it's a massive market. It's massive. massive and Scott market. talks about this all the time when he and I chat that, you know, I think sometimes as investors, we take a US centric view of things and don't realize that there are other economies and other countries in the world where the financial system isn't as sound as ours is. And to have something that can serve as a store of value or in their mind, digital gold or currency like Bitcoin and that simplistic example that it serves for people is a positive thing that creates demand. Then when you get to the potential for the technology and the disruption to impact all industries, just like the internet did, you know, the internet started as some way of communication, right, between governments and academics. And, you know, if you think about Amazon, Amazon's not an internet service provider. They built a very valuable business using the internet ultimately. And so that's what's going to happen in all these other industries. And that's going to feed the demand as well. One of the questions I have with regard to the fundamental side of things is, is the growth projection between today and 2040 is that growth in Bitcoin, is that already determined? Is that in the blockchain? Yes. Okay. It has to do with the process of validating the blockchain, what we call the proof of work model, where validators, those that are willing to host that ledger I referred to earlier, they're incentivized to keep those ledgers because if they essentially win the opportunity to validate a block, they're rewarded with Bitcoin for doing that job for the community, for posting and validating that transaction. And the issuance and the reward system halves every few years, but that's the only mechanism for new supply is that mining process. That's interesting. So what about portfolio considerations? One of the things that Jeff also mentioned in his clip is volatility, right? So. How do you think about volatility in the asset class and the correlation to other asset classes in a traditional insurance portfolio that's heavily weighted to fixed income and, you know, doesn't typically most insurers don't have an allocation to crypto today? So, you know, I think like most early stage innovative technologies, you're going to have volatility. 
you know, if, as far as a currency goes, I'll tell you, you know, you can look at the Turkish lira recently, you want to see a volatile currency. But from a portfolio construction standpoint, a couple of things. Obviously, first and foremost is you size it appropriately. You know it has a high degree of volatility, but it also has had an exhibited, and we would argue continue to have an outlook with a pretty robust upside potential. So you don't need much in your portfolio to go a long way. And by sizing it appropriately, you can reduce the volatility it contributes to your overall portfolio. Risk-adjusted returns, the sharp ratio, if you will. The other thing is you dollar cost average in. You know, this is has volatility and you know you put your investment in over time and lastly i'd say about volatility is volatility is okay kind of ties to the last part of your question if it's uncorrelated to the rest of the volatility in your portfolio and over the longer stretch of time that is what we have seen with this asset class it's volatility has not necessarily been correlated to drawdowns we've seen in other asset classes you know, when you look at it all over the long period of time, and Bitcoin is the one with the longest history, if you go back to 2012, we've seen, I think it's 15 corrections of 30% or greater for this asset class. Seven of them, I think, have been over 50%. But the interesting thing when you look at it back since 2012 is each of those corrections have come with higher lows followed by higher highs. So while it's been volatile and those corrections have been steep, we've still maintained an upward trend for this asset class overall because of those demand drivers we spoke about, because of this evolution of the technology and its applications, because of the broadening of the investor base, we continue to see that upward trajectory. And even though that's limited history, right, for Bitcoin, and that's the one that goes back the longest, you still see improvements in efficiency ratios. Now, I know a lot of people we speak to say, well, oh, that's because it's returned so much. Well, it should have because you just told me the volatility is really high. So with, with volatility should come the return expectation too. And, and at least it's delivered since the beginning on that. I think the other thing to keep in mind is we often look at the headline volatility of some of the bigger crypto assets out there. The way to address it is often build a basket of them. Because when you actually watch this stuff daily like we do, you appreciate that they don't all move lockstep in tandem with each other either. So there are certain days, months, quarters where a certain crypto assets actually held up or done really well when the headline one like Bitcoin didn't do so well. And so there is some diversification benefit across the crypto assets themselves. And I think that's an important thing that people should remember when thinking about volatility and, and how to actually construct your allocation to it if you should desire. It's something that I kind of keep going back to this one clip, but one of the things that, that Jeff also mentioned is in where insurance companies are concerned, many of them are writing cyber cover. And sometimes when they've got to pay a claim, that can need to be paid in crypto. I view this asset class as not only an investment asset class for an insurance company, but very well may be a hedging vehicle, which is kind of a backward take on the volatility. But still, I think, depending upon your book of business, you know, could actually serve to reduce economic volatility. Okay, so what can you tell us about the NASDAQ Crypto Index, affectionately known as the NCI? And I know that you are launching a private fund. Obviously, we're not offering securities here, but can you kind of give us a, an overview of that index and, and sort of how you guys are approaching this market? Sure. So, you know, we've been watching this market for a number of years evolve and 
ultimately in up until you know the beginning or middle of last year we really didn't think the market had the sort of ability to offer an institutional quality product the nci our partners at nasdaq uh they approached us with this index that they built that really seemed to have its guiding principles aligned with the way we thought you needed to approach the market. And their principles really center around three primary aspects that I think tie very well to the topics we've discussed. The first topic was the idea that the index needed to be representative. And by that, they meant we're not betting on just Bitcoin to be the long-term winner, not betting on Netscape to be the search engine. We wanted it an index and they built an index to provide multi-coin exposure. So being representative was really important. The second was that it needed to be institutionally investable. And this had to do with the due diligence behind the tokens that would be eligible for this index, meaning that they needed to be vetted for their ability to be monitored from a trading standpoint. So vetted on the exchanges that would trade these currencies. So to be in this index, you need to qualify for three of the five approved exchanges that NASDAQ, one of the leading equity exchanges on the planet, does due diligence to make sure that you have the surveillance, you can offer transparent pricing and are watching the way these things trade. So making sure they were on proper exchanges. Lastly was custody. You know, we all talk about, and we started this conversation about security, the tokens needed to be eligible to be held at vetted custodians who had the proper operational oversight, technology oversight to protect the private keys, to protect the assets that go into this index. On top of that, they have an index committee that's made up of lawyers and regulators and their own index team and technology teams to vet the currencies as well. So they did a very thorough and rigorous vetting of tokens to be included. So while we want it to be representative currently, and you mentioned at the beginning of the call, 8,000 tokens available, only eight currently meet NASDAQ's criteria. So representative institutionally investable through that vetting process. And then third, and, and most importantly, was designed to be adaptable. So by quarterly rebalancing, they're constantly trying to find the next coins that are representative and institutionally investable and essentially provide beta to the asset class, not bet and pick a winner, but to provide that broad representative basket of stocks that tracks the performance of the overall asset class that will evolve over time. So we launched a private fund that tracks that index. The private fund has its own advantages, its fee obviously being pretty attractive, but also the liquidity. We mentioned the way to get into this asset class is through averaging in. It's the only private fund we've seen in the marketplace that offers daily subscriptions and redemptions. So providing that flexibility for investors to both you know, access or redeem from the fund on a daily basis. It's interesting that you mentioned the NASDAQ as being one of the global market leaders. I also remember when NASDAQ shares were thought of as shady or weird or whatever. Everything was the NYSE when I started in this business. And that is also a great example of market disrupting technology and, and the impact now. So, And what they ultimately want to do is, you know, they are thought of as a technology first kind of an innovative company. You think about the NASDAQ 100. The NCI is designed to be for crypto what the NASDAQ 100 is in terms of technology and innovation. They want this to be flashed on the screen next to the S&P index, the NASDAQ 100 index, and the NCI to be that you know, leading index for crypto assets. 
That's terrific. Let me close with the question that we tend to close with. So I'm going to take both you and Monik back to your a day that I know you'll remember, which is your uh, graduation day from your undergraduate institution. And regardless of your uh, festivities, the evening before, you're both bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and ready to get your diploma. So you wait and wait and wait, and you go up the stairs, they call your name, the crowd goes bananas, you go across, you get a quick handshake and a photo op, and down the stairs you go with your newly minted college degree. And at the bottom of the stairs, you run into yourself today. What do you tell your 21-year-old self, Scott? It's a great question. Uh, wow. Um, I, I guess I would probably give myself all of the great stock tips and uh, disasters <laughs> of what to avoid. Uh, you know, it's almost the ability to get tomorrow's newspaper today. So I probably whisper in my ear a few great stock tips. <laughs> Monica, how about you? I would say never be afraid to embrace what's uncomfortable or new. God, I love that. That's awesome. You know, we have uh, we have folks who are earlier in their career, and I think they benefit from hearing from senior investment professionals and market experts like both of you, not only for your knowledge in crypto with Victory Capital, but also your advice on just being, uh, you know, investment professionals. So with that, Scott Kiefer, Monik Dillon, thanks for being on, gentlemen. We uh, We learned a lot today. Thanks for having us, Stuart. Thanks, Stuart. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you have ideas for podcasts, please email us at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the Insurance AUM Journal Podcast. Podcast.